Okay, so here we go. So we have, uh, we're happy to have Stephanie Powell with us today for the interview. Um, Stephanie is a content producer for mobile media at SFMOMA and recently, I guess just recently, rejoined SFMOMA after about four years at MOMA. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and uh, so you're working specifically on mobile and apps currently. Is that right? Yeah, mobile and apps, um, but, you know, we work very um, collaboratively, so I'm definitely having input in um, other digital projects. Okay, great. Um, Well, we've all had a look at your LinkedIn profile, and um, we've seen that you've worked back and forth between both the education departments and digital departments at both MoMA and SFMOMA over the last 10 years or so. so I wanted to start off with a question about about your career path there. Um, I was wondering if it's um, difficult these days to kind of make that transition be- between more transition uh, traditional education roles and digital media roles at museums, or have you found that uh, it's increasingly porous? Are there still barriers there that you have to to confront? Um, just if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, the transition has been really easy uh, because, you know, the way that I entered into um, education was through that lens of technology Um, because I started interning at SFMOMA at the very end of 2001, and um, that was with the Interactive Educational Technologies Department. And at that time, I was actually you know, really interested in, well, I didn't really know what I was interested in because, um, you know, I had an idea of what I was interested in, but, you know, my background was actually in anthropology and archaeology, and I went into museum studies thinking that my interests really lay in working for an art history, um, not art history, a natural history museum, and and focusing actually on material culture. So... Mm. um, I was really interested in grad school in museum education, um, but it was, you know, taking that internship in 2001 and um, being under the mentorship of Peter Samus in the IET department that really, you know, kind of guided the rest of my career, honestly, um, into, you know, moving away from collections management, moving away from, um, you know, a focus on natural history and ethnological museums to working in art museums and thinking about the ways in which digital can be a great storytelling device, a convener of, um, you know, opinions. And um, so that, that it, you know, for me, that, that was my first entree into museum education. And so for me, it's always been very easy to... Um, you know, go in between, and not even go in between. I think that, you know, we sometimes, uh, we present the barriers ourselves, you know, when we Mm -hmm. think about there being stark um, differences between educational practice and what can be done in digital media. I think that um, there are a lot of, um, you know, I think in in the past, 10 years, I think that those barriers are beginning to break down and that educators are beginning to realize that, you know, there's a lot more that we can do, um, you know, not to be afraid of 
technology as being kind of an intrusive presence in the galleries. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that may be something as simple as, you know, someone giving a live uh, experience in the galleries with a work of art and using an iPad uh, to provide supplementary information um, to, you know, using social media as a space for integrating uh, external voices into uh, an educational module. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's been pretty, pretty well. It seems really well integrated, and I think that has a lot to do with just the, you know, how I entered into education in the first place. That's great. That's that's good to hear. I I haven't worked in a museum, but I had that sense that it was becoming more integrated as well. Um, so, I a broader question, looking over the past five to ten years, um, what would you say is the most rewarding digital project you've worked on and what were the factors that made it so successful? Uh, that's, a, you know, when I was looking at your list of questions, that one was probably the hardest for me. Really? Wow. Um, yeah, because uh, I find, re- you know, there are rewards to every single one of them, you know, and I'm not just saying that to be diplomatic. I'm saying that because Every single project that I've worked on has been a completely different journey and and has come with its own roadblocks and its own kind of challenges and then its own rewards at the end. And so I guess, you know, the the most rewarding digital project that I'm working on is, is the one that, you know, is the most recent one that I'm working on um, in, mm-hmm. in some ways, you know. Um, but I guess if I had to kind of – you know, right now I've only been back at SFMOMA um, for, you know, a couple months now. And so I guess the most recent completed project would be, a uh, large-scale digital project would be MoMA Audio Plus. Mm-hmm. Or um, the, the, so MoMA Audio Plus is the name of the museum's new um, on-site in-museum app. And then yeah, MoMA, I read about that. It sounds amazing. Yeah, and then there's a slightly different iteration of that called MoMA, just the MoMA app, and that one's actually mm-hmm. the app that's available in the um, the uh, Apple uh, App Store. So for me, that you know, because it's the most recent and the most fresh, um, I'm still kind of riding high on some of the rewards of that and some of the challenges right. as well. Um, so I guess maybe the process of actually conceiving of that was actually very, very rewarding for me because it was so um, cross-departmental and it involved not just technologists and the education department who were kind of the core drivers of the project, but it really, you know, um, because we wanted to do it right, we wanted to involve stakeholders from around the museum from the get-go and also mm-hmm. to actually go out and speak to visitors about and, and do research about their needs and how and allowing those – you know, that kind of visitor-driven focus to lay the groundwork for what it was we actually we eventually developed and implemented. Um, so, I don't know. Long story short, whatever I'm working on is the thing yeah. that's most rewarding. Yeah, <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I, I read about that, and I can't wait to try it my, myself on my next visit to New York. Um, but that segues nicely into the, the next question, which is about identifying audience needs. Um, in, in the process of developing the MoMA Audio Plus, how did you go about, did you come up with user profiles or did you use different methods to try to determine um, your key audiences? Yeah. Um, Well, I think that 
you know, as I was kind of saying before, I think it's really imperative to actually just go out and speak with your targeted audiences. And, you know, that's, that's not just for, you know, digital projects, but for any project, whether you're consulting with, um, you know, a group of blind or partially sighted visitors, as MoMA did when they were developing their visual descriptions audio tour, or mm -hmm. whether you're interviewing people, you know, you're writing labels for an exhibition, and so the first thing you do is you go out into the galleries and you interview people about their questions, their burning questions about that particular artwork, or questions about, you know, um, visiting a museum. Um, and those those are things that, you know, are simple interventions that you can do to inform, you know, user interface design or content development across a wide range of projects. Um, and I think also internally it's really important that the core project uh, leads gathers support and participation from many departments from the get-go and, you know, not just curatorial but also people who work in operations, uh, you know, people who are in charge of like the infrastructure that you'll need to actually implement uh, the project successfully, people from visitor services who have a really frontline view of the challenges that visitors have when they walk through the threshold of our museums and security and development and finance. And these were all people who were very key core um, consulting members of the uh, group that developed the MoMA Audio app. And mm -hmm. also moving forward at SFMOMA, we're going to have a diff you know, a, a similar um, con uh, kind of governance structure involving uh, people from around the museum who have um, expertise to share on all these different, uh, you know, areas that we're, you know, that we, um, our team may not be equipped to, to have, you know, that right perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, so, but at MoMA, I'm just thinking, um, you know, about our process for developing the functionality and features of the app, and it was re really visitor stories. Um, and I guess I, I can explain that a little bit more. Uh, I was co-leader of a, of a content-focused subgroup along with uh, Sarah Bodenson, who's Director of Interpretation and Research, and we led a series of workshops and meetings um, with people from around the museum who worked in all the different areas that I kind of mentioned earlier to help us envision what the you know future of mobile interpretation might be at MoMA. So in one workshop, we convened um, you know all these stakeholders to take part in um, an agile brainstorming exercise where every participant was randomly assigned a visitor persona. I think we had um, maybe six of them outlined. Um, and we asked each of them to write one visitor story um, or a, a scenario that kind of helped articulate what that persona might want to achieve within the mobile space. So the stories, um, you know, took the structure of as a whatever the persona is, I can perform a certain task so I can achieve a certain goal. Mm -hmm. And these these stories really helped us to define the initial scaffolding of the content and the functionalities um, and the features of the app. And and those were then kind of funneled into wireframes um, for the the actual um, development of or the use, actual like user interface um, and features of the app. Mm -hmm. so. And these were staff members from different departments. These were staff the members. Stores? 
Yeah, from different departments yeah. who had, you know, different different points of view, obviously. They had their own, you know, agendas coming in um, of, yeah. of the experiences that they want to highlight through these features. And, um, and also, um, you know, the, we were – so this was only like one part of the research. We also, you know, had a whole, you know, um, had done a series of interviews with visitors and done a survey of mobile use in the galleries and kind of using all of these um, points of information to sort of triangulate and get to a core set of features um, and a core user experience. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's right. And how, um, I think, when did you launch this? Was it about a year ago? The app? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was actually, um, when was it? It was actually longer ago than that. Oh, my gosh, it's all blurring together. I think it was like yeah. July 4th, uh, 2012 or something. Um, and have, have you found that your user personas have handouts? I mean, does it seem to match the way people are using it? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the user – so the way the user personas are helpful is that it helps you to put a, a kind of face to this generalized audience because the fact is the – you know, ev- we can't we, – we can – we use these user personas to kind of help hone in and focus our thinking, um, you know, if we have a name and a face attached to these stories. But, um, you know, with the idea that if we design for these, you know, six personas, that we'll create something that is, you know, better and more useful for everybody who uses the app um, Mm -hmm. because it is a general audience app. And so um, it it helps, you know, to refine your thinking um, and Mm -hmm. to think and be empathetic with the needs of particular users. But... Um, you know, I think there there probably needs to be a little more research about like how how the app is actually being used in the galleries. Although there have been some follow up observations and um, you know surveys and user testing that have helped us to refine some of those features and make make kind of small iterative little changes to to the app interface and um, the way that it works. Okay. Yeah, I was I wanted to ask you about evaluation methods. So have you, have you, it sounds like you've done some evaluation of it to date. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as a whole, evaluation is, is really key to how, to rethinking the way that we do things in general and the way, and to test out new ideas in any platform, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. analog or digital. I think, um, I think, you know, when we work in big institutions, behind the scenes, we can really get into a rut where we start to presume what our visitors want or, you know, we start to think through the lens of institutional restraints, you know, Mm -hmm. what we've been told we can't do, and we forget to talk to visitors. So, you know, thinking back on my recent experiences at MoMA where we were experimenting with with a, a whole suite of new forms of interpretation and engagement, not just the app, but, you know, methods for doing, you know, live interpretation in the galleries. We were really inspired by the kind of agile, you know, just do it approach that had been really successful in, you know, in the development of the app. So 
for one, instead of speculating on the potential impact and challenges of new programs, we really went out in the galleries and just did them. And we did, uh, you know, we, we in the education department, we had educators facilitating these kind of rough and dirty prototypes, and then we had others observing and documenting and then conducting follow-up surveys and interviews with visitors to kind of probe a little deeper into some of what, the, what worked and what didn't. And so, for example, um, yeah, I'm so I'm I'm totally going off topic. So actually, you can you know tell me that uh, you know to um, pull back and focus. But I'm thinking just off the cuff about um, how we used iter the education department used iterative strategies to develop a new uh, live interpretation program that that has since been called gallery sessions, and these are facilitated pop-up experiences in the galleries that give visitors a more, I, I would say, interactive, um, hands-on alternative to gallery talks, which were really information-driven in the past. Right. Um, and the entire department participated. What we did was we just paired up in teams. We developed activities together. We got together some props, and then we just went in the galleries and tested them out with, you know, um, people in the galleries and then kind of came back and reported on what worked and what didn't and, and went through these, you know, cycles of refining ideas and throwing some ideas out and coming up with new ones. And, um, so so that kind of agile approach you found to be effective? Excuse me? That, that kind of iterative agile approach, you found it to be effective? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, because it also okay. allows you to test things out. You know, I think that sometimes uh, when it comes to evaluation, people are kind of afraid of of evaluation because they've been conditioned to think that that studies all always require these huge sample sizes, or that you need to pay a consultant, you know, thousands right. of dollars to do a large scale longitudinal study. But in fact, you know, more often than not, it's really just as instructive to prototype something really quickly to do a small scale, you know, survey or maybe a qualitative evaluation by going into the gallery and just talking to people and or maybe working with your volunteer coordinator to wrangle up some test subjects and hmm. you know, doing observations for a couple hours, um, you know, which really doesn't require much more than maybe like a floor plan and, you know, some paper to, to put some notes on and um you know, I think data, when it comes to digital, um, data can only tell you so much, you know. Right. Um, it can't tell you who the – it can tell you, you know, quantitative data, but it can't tell you who those users are, what their motivations are, what challenges they had. And so I think, you know, data is just one piece of a larger picture, and we need to fill in those pictures or that picture by by – going out and talking to people and, you know, doing focus groups or, you know, any other, any number of, of things that involve not just relying on, on hard numbers. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Okay. I think I'll turn it over to um, one of my classmates now. Jessica, Meg, you want to jump in? They may have, do you have your, your phones on mute? Uh, I just unmuted mine. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Go um, ahead. This is Meg. Um, Hi. 
Um, I just want to uh, switch focus for just a minute here. Um, we were going to ask um, how things are going at SF Momo because you're in kind of a unique situation where the museum is under renovation right now. So yeah. what kind of challenges and opportunities is that presented to you as a content producer? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the obvious challenge is that there's no building and, you know, in our artwork, um, you know, for safety reasons is being stored off site uh, somewhere that is, you know, our staff are divided right now between three different campuses, uh, two in San Francisco and then one, you know, a little south of San Francisco. And, you know, so that organizationally, I think that that um, has, you know, pre presented a, a little bit of a challenge for logistics around meetings and communication between people. But I think that, you know, we've actually technology has been really helpful, um, you know, there's there's a shuttle that allows you know allows you to visit all three campuses, but there's also you know we're able to use video conferencing and other ways to 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 kind of mitigate the the separation of the staff, and um, you know another challenge is also you know not having a physical space for us to do you know testing um, of uh, you know even like hanging art, for example, you know, like the curators um, actually have a mock-up gallery that they're working with and, um, and they're, they're, you know, they're in the same, the mock-up gallery is in the same facility as the storage, the art storage. And so a lot of the curating is actually being done through this mock-up gallery where, you know, they'll choose a section of, you know, like the second floor or something. And, um, come up with a checklist and then hang things, and and that's that's kind of an interesting workaround, I think. But I think for those of us who aren't working in curatorial, it's also, you know, challenging to not have a space where we can, you know, test out, or a permanent space where we can test out um, new technologies or do, you know, testing with with visitors. But you know, I think it's also you know, more so than a challenge, I think it's been a real opportunity to really rethink the way that things have been done. Um, I mean, I I think that, um, you know, not having a, an open museum is, is actually really, in a way, it, you know, it's hard to, I think, really, truly, rethink the way that you're you're going to do things moving forward if you're still trying to maintain that the the old systems you know um mm -hmm. so you know for example you know if we're still so focused on you know like we have to maintain like the you know these these legacy systems, the walls are still up, and so it's hard for us to think about, you know, re-envisioning the space in any other way than it than it stands before us. I think that can be a big roadblock to creativity and to um, thinking about, you know, the way that things can be done differently moving forward. And I think, um, so in a way, not having that physical space, while it's a challenge, is also kind of freeing because 
there is no going back. And, you know, you have to do things right. differently. And you also have to think really imaginatively and creatively about how you do, um, you know, there's no template anymore. And that's both scary and totally exciting. So like the SF MoMA on the go, um, you know, uh, partnerships with other organizations and um, other museums has been such an awesome opportunity that I think is going to continue even after the museum reopens in 2016, you know, because it's it's kind of a way to stop looking inward and to look outward and to really engage with the local creative community and to think, you know, you know, we always think about our collection in, you know, in this, you know, footprint, but wow, like how eye-opening to see these key pieces from your collection being placed in a whole different context and being curated alongside other pieces and being interpreted in totally new ways. Um, I mean, I think it's it's been really exciting. And um, it's also, I think, really kind of enlightening to see how uh, the closure of the museum has really actually had a, an impact, uh, you know, very, um, felt impact, I think, on the field um, or on the on the kind of art scene in, in the Bay Area. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, making, putting more effort um, and being more creative about the ways in which you engage um, without having that physical footprint available is, um, has been really fun. That's great. Um, well, considering how connected you feel to the rest of the community now and how you've seen that impact, um, what kind of ideas do you have for going forward? Um, what are you planning once the museum reopens? Um, there is so much happening. I'm like, what do I... <laughs> I know, that's I, a loaded question. Yeah, it, you know, the funny thing is, you know, um, I think uh, the museum has been busier than ever, than it's ever been. And it's really fascinating to come back, you know, after like four and a quarter years um, at a very fast-paced uh, institution like MoMA and to come back and see like, oh my gosh, like so much has changed in the four years, not only with museum, but also with the city and how the museum responds to the changes in the, in the culture of the city. And, um, you know, so some of the things that um, I think you know, digital experiences that visitors are going to encounter in the new museum is, um, I mean, I can rattle off like a bunch of them. I think, you know, one thing is, is um, you know, mobile is really because we don't have that physical space. Um, you know, mobile's really been moving to the forefront of everything that SFMOMA does. And so the app that we're currently in the midst of strategizing is um, going to be designed, you know, you know, there's going to be, it's, of course, it's going to be designed to fit kind of those core customer service needs like ticket buying, visit planning, and et cetera. But one thing we're really excited about is the idea of presenting the mobile space as this, you know, what we're referring to as this fifth wall. So a space for experimentation that's that's just as compelling and, and provocative as what goes on in the, the traditional four walls of the museum. So we're... Uh, working towards a goal of um, engaging uh, the Bay Area creative community 
um, to create content that's kind of a departure from the traditional audio guide model. So, you know, continuing to focus on this, these kind of random access, short form, um, you know, media pieces or media experiences, but also changing the, the kind of nature of those. So some things we're working on are, um, you know, instead of providing just curatorial or scholarly, scholarly commentary, we're commissioning creative one-on-one -on -one responses to artworks that, you know, sometimes may take the, the form of a response, you know, um, but sometimes may take the form of original artwork or a piece, you know, creative work themselves, like a musical comp composition or a poem or a piece of writing. And, you know, in a way, that's a process of us letting go of control, um, you know, and because we, we, you know, we reach out to these people, but we can't really, um, you know, guide them or control what they eventually come up with. So using mobile as kind of a, itself a kind of space for curating and commissioning new creative uh, works, um, and then thinking outside of art history to asking, you know, people with from different fields or areas like actors or athletes or filmmakers and politicians. Um, and uh, I guess another thing we're thinking about is, um, you know, we're thinking of using, like delivering all this new content. We're also thinking of games. Um, so <laughs> thinking not just about producing consumable pieces of media, but also integrating games and activities um, and giving them an equal footing with these kind of consumable pieces of media that that really encourage and allow for um, intergenerational learning experiences. So games that, um, you know, will give a kind of a, a different alternative way into experiencing the museum or engaging with a work of art and that aren't, you know, we're trying to move the perception of games and activities as being just for families and kids and being something that's for every generation. Um, and another thing we're thinking about that, that we're experimenting with is, you know, all of these content pieces being delivered on demand, um, either through a single or a bundled app experience and we're going to be wiring up all the galleries and interstitial spaces with free public Wi-Fi and using location sensing technology to deliver um, that content. So I think right now it's a really exciting time for innovation in, with Bluetooth um, low energy beacon technology. So, um, you know, we're doing some experiments and, and we don't really you know, we're, we're testing out right now just the exact mix of solutions. And because we don't have our own, you know, we have the, the mock-up gallery um, that, that I mentioned earlier, but we, we also are partnering with, you know, another museum right now to um, test out some of these location sensing technologies. Um, and... Uh, I guess another thing that people will encounter when they come into the museum is, you know, we know that, you know, I've been talking very heavily about mobile, but we know that there are a lot of visitors who really don't want to be plugged into a mobile device the entire time. 
So we're going to, you know, in terms of technology, we're going to also offer um, in-building interactives that, that give people opportunities, in-situ opportunities for um, storytelling or participating and, um, you know, with the, and these experiences will, um, you know, they might stand on their own or they might complement the handheld experience. And so visitors, when they come in, they're going to see screen arrays in, in the kind of what we're calling welcome spaces. Um, and, you know, it'll have kind of the, that basic information that people are desiring, you know, like what exhibitions are on, what, you know, what programs are happening. But also these, these digital arrays, screen arrays might be a venue or will be a venue for storytelling and cycling through interpretive media and also commissioning space for artists and designers. Um, and the last thing I would mention also is, um, is a, you know, when the museum opens in 2016, it's actually going to be home of a new um, center for, for photography, which is actually going to end up being the largest exhibition space for photography at any art museum in the U.S. And it's going to really triple the amount of current space that we have devoted to exhibiting photography. And as part of that, there's going to be uh, the Phot Photography Interpretive Center, which is going to be a really cool, innovative, interpretive space that's going to allow visitors to explore photography through the lens of um, a whole host of, of interactive learning experiences. So, you know, first off, it's going to have seating, <laughs> which is something that's often overlooked, you know, when we're crafting learning experiences. So it's going to be a comfortable place to come and a welcoming place to come. And then there's going to be exhibits that um, can offer multiple paths into experiencing photography. So interactives around, for example, you know, like a photo booth that, you know, talks about, you know, kind of builds upon this like selfie craze and um, talks about the role of self-portraiture and um, in crafting identity. And um, there's going to be another um, area that talks about, you know, the impact of new technology, like smartphones, for example, on, on photography, the future of photography. And um, they're going to be, you know, these kind of drop-in um, visitor, you know, self-directed activity-based um, things that are going to allow visitors to, to contribute and to explore at their own pace and to at sometimes, you know, curate their own experiences with photography. So that's my long answer for <laughs> some of the things that you might no, see when you come to the incredible. museum. Yeah. Oh, I want to go now, actually. It's <laughs> Um, okay, well, I think that kind of got through a lot of what I was curious about. Um, Jessica, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Hi, Stephanie. This is Jessica. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much um, for agreeing to do this interview. Um, and I'm going to shift to trends and professional development. Um, so what new advances in museum technology are you most excited about and which do you think are overhyped? Hmm, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I'm really interested in, you know, as a content person, I'm really mm -hmm. interested in, you know, the potential of 
place-based storytelling. So, you know, I alluded earlier to location-sensitive um, technology as being a, a really kind of game-changer when it comes to, the, to providing um, content to people. And I think that actually, though, stems from my, you know, experience as, as a, you know, as an educator, because I think, um, you know, one of the biggest advantages that, um, you know, the work that I'm going to be working on, the, the museum app and the content, is that uh, because of the portability and the mobility of apps um, and the potential of, you know, using beacons or some other, you know, location-sensitive technology to trigger content just in the moment that someone might need it. Um, it's mm -hmm. really a, a perfect platform for fostering what, you know, what, what educators call just-in-time learning experiences. So, um, you know, I guess you know, what do I mean by, by just in time? I guess I'm, I'm thinking about how educators are really constantly thinking about, you know, what, what we're talking about when we talk about education. So, you know, the kind of old-fashioned, outmoded model is, is that education operates as a kind of warehouse model. You know, we, we think about, or we thought about education as giving people facts and information and things right. that, that we kind of think they ought to know and and that learning is a process of storing those facts away as in, a, in like a little sort of mental warehouse and that somehow the learner will kind of innately know, uh, be able to absorb all and keep all that content and then pluck it out at just the right, you know, moment. And obviously mm -hmm. that model is, is really predicated on the idea that the learner not only has the capacity but the motivation and curiosity to kind of carry this information around them for years. <laughs> So, mm -hmm. you know, just as a museum educator coming to the realization, you know, and this is not just, you know, when it comes to digital projects, but just in general, that, that this warehouse model is totally unrealistic. It's put a lot, puts a lot of unrealistic unreal, expectations on the learner and that the kind of recall of information isn't really equal learning. So, you know, I think, um, you know, the way that we are designing um, content and designing, you know, not designing content not just in digital, but also in, you know, like labels and, you know, the way that we design, um, you know, are designing, uh, you know, uh, like live interpretation programs or interventions in the galleries or learning spaces where we mm -hmm. position them and what goes in them. It's, it's all about giving you know, people the tools um, at the time that they need them and facilitating not just, you know, finding factoids, but giving them new ways into finding, into understanding, um, you know, what's what's happening. So, um, oh, that was my really long convoluted <laughs> way of talking about, um, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, I guess, you know, locate, you know, this, just this idea of, you know, the technology, like the goals that, that educators have had for years are finally, you know, the, the technology is finally in a way like emerging that will allow those things to, mm -hmm. to actually happen in the mobile space. 
so you know and to make it easier for people to to find and um, surface content at the time when they need them um right as far as as far as overhyped mm-hmm. i mean you know, if you go to conferences every year, there's there's one thing that kind of be, is like the hot thing. And, um, you know, a few years ago it was, you know, like augmented reality. And, you know, I think that there's still a lot of, you know, interest in that area. I think, um, uh-huh. I don't know, I that's a hard one. I don't really know if I have an answer for yeah. that, you know. <laughs> I think we don't okay. really know if it's overhyped until we we implement it, and then we do some evaluation and see, like, you know, what impact is this actually having on people, you know? You can right. invest, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in something, and it can completely, like, not meet any of the, the goals um, that you'd set out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard for me to talk in, like, the kind of broad strokes about what's working right. and, what, you know, what doesn't. I think it's really... No, I understand. Uh, yeah. Um, sort of following up on that, um, what digital skill do you wish you had more training or know-how in? Um, you know, this is something that I I would love to be a more informed, you know, hands-on coder. I've taken, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I know HTML. I've taken, like, intro to, you know, CSS, and, you know, I, I'm around – like developer people all the time, so I have kind of a conceptual understanding. But I'd love to be able to, you know, to you to to actually do these things um, firsthand. And so um, there's there's a, a few groups like meetup groups like um, Girls Who Code and um, I, can't, I can't remember the names of some of them, but Girls Who Code um, is is one group that I've kind of been involved with to learn some of these skills. Um, but I don't know. I'm just a tinkerer and I'm like a curious person in general. So I'm always like, there's always something that I want to get my hands on. Right. Um, so when you're learning about digital trends, how do you stay connected to new information? And are there any professional organizations that you would recommend joining um, in order to stay current on these digital strategies? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for me, you know, the, the, a way that I stay connected it, to digital trends is, you know, by doing a lot of reading of, you know, writing by my colleagues in the field or, you know, reading their blogs or reading articles when they come out and really paying attention to what's happening outside of, um, you know, my little sphere. Um, and... So, for example, like one that I that I really like to read is Ed Rodley's um, blog. I think he's really just a, a great, you know, mix of digital technologist with someone who's just really engaged with, you know, learning in general. And um, I guess professional organizations, um, you know, conferences, I would highly recommend like you know if you could scrape together the money to go to a conference um i think that is just you know those conferences are always a highlight for me um you know in the years that i'm able to go because it's just like you you're not going to have a chance to you know it's it's more than about like seeing the presentations of your you know by your your colleagues it's also 
those um, conversations that happen in between sessions, you know, like having dinner mm-hmm. with somebody and finding about, out about, you know, the challenges that they're having with this project or that project and how in a lot of ways there's a ton of overlap between the challenges we're all facing. And so kind of just hearing in a, you know, very casual setting about, you know, that we're all facing the same challenges and knowing that, you know, here, learning that maybe, you know, one person has tried this thing and, you know, so maybe that's something that you should try in your organization. I don't know. Right. Um, well, that was great. Um, my last question is, currently, do you see the digital presence of museums being intertwined with physical museums or as separate uh, entities? And how do you think this will evolve in the future? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the kind of ubiquity of mobile technologies is something that, you know, the ownership of of mobile devices is something that, you know, cuts across economic and class lines. That's something that, you know, we're coming to realize is, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just like the elite that can own mobile devices now. Now it's like everybody has them. And also the emergence or... I should actually probably say arrival of of this generation of digital natives. Um, It's really mapping a future where it's no longer feasible for museums to to be one thing in the digital space and another in the physical space. Um, Mm -hmm. I think increasingly digital is the first encounter that people have with a museum and, you know, whether they're pre-planning or researching or just kind of, you know, by chance coming across some you know, digital museum content while they're doing an online search. And I think, so at this point, you know, it really makes no sense for us to think about digital or mobile in isolation from the physical experience of the galleries. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think, I don't know, organizationally, I'm just thinking about, you know, how that's being reflected in in the structure of um, digital teams. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a trend right now. Um, you know, I think in the past digital teams have been treated as as these kind of specialized units working, you know, in the basement, you know, doing their own thing that's mm-hmm. separate from the rest of the museum. <laughs> but I think now, you know, you see, you know, like um, these kind of interdisciplinary cross-trained teams that are that are made up. Made up not just of technologists and developers and and IT people, but also educators, publishers, you know, content people, designers who have expertise in all these different fields and and are in the room from the get-go at the beginning of every project. So I'm just thinking about you know from my personal experience at SFMOMA the evolution of um, the interactive educational technologies team, I think, is really in, indicative of this trend because when I started in 2001 as an intern, it really it was this kind of small, agile little niche group within education because no mm-hmm. one really knew where else to put it. <laughs> and you know, and and over time, it's kind of branched more widely to be this this seed for this overall change in 
you know, interpretive practice moving forward. So it became kind of the interpretive planning entity. And then now it's been renamed interpretive media and it's been folded in as one hub or one spoke in this, in this new division called content strategy and digital engagement, um, which is made up of, um, you know, interpretive media, which is my team, and then web and digital, publications, community engagement, and then graphic design, all in this one in kind of interdisciplinary um, umbrella, I guess. So, right. I, I mean, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the trend that I see emerging right now mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. Well, that sounds really exciting. I can imagine so much more creativity flows from putting all these different people from different departments together. Um, to think about things happening in the museum. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's good to have, you know, because some of those teams are more attuned to what's happening in the physical space, you know, and some mm -hmm. people are more attuned to, you know, like new technologies coming out. So it's good to have, like, this multifaceted group together under one, you know, one, div one division. Right. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to um, open it up to fellow classmates that are um, listening into this interview. Does anyone else have any questions that they'd like to ask? Jessica, I think we have Leslie and Clara for the first half hour, but it looks like they've dropped off. So okay. um, I don't see anyone else online at the moment. Okay. So I think that, that does it, Stephanie. Um, okay. Thanks so much for your time. That was really fascinating. And I think you've sold us all on the new SF MoMA. I can't wait to go out and visit yeah. now. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, yeah, I was a bit long-winded with some of my answers, but I'm glad that you hung in there and listened. Yeah, thank you. No, it's, it's, it's yeah. really yeah. fascinating to get the, the behind-the-scenes information um, on yeah, how some of these things are developing. <clears throat> really helpful. So, um, as I mentioned, we'll, we're going to uh, we're recording this. We'll post it on the class blog in the next week or so, and we'll send you a link. And um, hope you'll be able to to read it and comment it on on it as well. Sure, I look forward to your recap. And thank you for great. asking me to participate. This has been really great. And I wish I'd had the you know you know when I was in grad school, I wish I'd had this opportunity as well. So like, bravo to you guys for making it happen. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, Dane has been a really creative professor, and I think it's a great great idea to include current professionals in the conversation. Um, yeah. It really brings it, brings it to life. So. Yeah. Okay, well, have, thanks again for your time, and have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye, guys. Okay, bye. Bye.